Welcome back to Picture Scripture. The title of today's message is Lukewarm, and we're going to be reading out of Revelation 3, 14 to 22. It is written, To the angel of the church and Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I shall to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Picture this. In a kingdom of a faraway land, there was once a squire who became a knight for the king. Because all the villagers knew that this knight worked for the king, they gave him special treatment and lavished him with gifts on a consistent basis. Over time, however, because the kingdom existed in peace and knew no hardships of war, this knight became so accustomed to the people blessing him, he began to greedily expect gifts from the people rather than gratefully accept those gifts. In fact, because the people always took care of the knight's needs, he forgot that it was his job to fight for the people. But one day, a messenger of the king traveled through the village where the knight was stationed and he noticed that the knight was living a life of luxury at the expense of the people and even taking advantage of the people in the name of the king. The messenger reported back to the king that the knight had allowed himself to become lazy and unfit for duty and that he took advantage of the people in the name of the king. Moreover, it appeared as if the knight had gained so much weight that he wouldn't be able to fit into his armor even if he were called for battle. The king, infuriated, sent the messenger to the knight with a message. It has come to my attention that you are a knight without armor and a man without honor. Because you are living above your means and taking advantage of the people in my name, you are in danger of my wrath. But because I am a most gracious king, I will allow you the opportunity to correct your mistakes and make right your wrongs. If you don't correct your mistakes and make right all your wrongs, you will be cast out of the kingdom. However, if you become the knight I have called you to be, you will be restored and we will dine together as family. I hope that you make the right choice, not out of fear of me, but out of love for me and love for the people whom you serve. 
Just as Christians often express their confusion and concern regarding the unforgivable sin, they also express their confusion and concern regarding the Lord declaring someone to be lukewarm. What exactly does it mean to be lukewarm? Can anyone be lukewarm or does this only apply to certain people? Well, let us investigate what is written and then examine the evidence to see how this applies to us today, if it applies to us at all. This message begins with, to the angel of the church. The word angel is the English translation of the Greek word angelos, which means a messenger. Though the word most frequently refers to an order of created beings superior to man, as we see in Psalm 8.5, Hebrews 2.7, by implication it could also mean a pastor. This word is also used of a guardian or representative, as we see in Revelation 1.20. So the angel might be a human messenger, such as a pastor, or a literal angel sent as a messenger to the church. But who is this message from? The one who sent the message is more important than the messenger. And if the messenger is received, then the one who sent the messenger would also be received, as we see in Matthew 10.40. It is written that the one sending the message is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. These four clues will provide the answer as to who sent the message. The word Amen is transliterated from Hebrew into both Greek and English. When the word Amen comes directly from the Lord, it literally means, it is and shall be so. And for this reason, when angels or humans proclaim the Amen, they are saying, let it be so in response to God's will. See Revelation 5.14 and 22, 20-21. The Hebrew word Amen comes from Aman, which means everlasting, enduring, immovable, and true. So the Amen is God's truthful and unchangeable word, yet also affirmation of the covenant of God's word. In essence, both the Aman and Amen mean faithfulness. And this makes sense seeing how God's word cannot be broken, as we see throughout multiple scriptures. However, in this specific verse under example, examination, Amen is a title for Christ Jesus because through him the purposes of God are established. 2 Corinthians 1.20 So we already know that the one sending the message is faithful and true, but scripture continues by telling us that the one who sent the message is the witness. The word witness is the English translation of the Greek word martus, which could mean a literal witness in a judicial sense, or one who bears witness by his death. As such, the word martyr derives from this word, and it is for this reason Hebrews 12.1 tells us that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses as exemplified in Hebrews 11.34-38 and Revelation 24. But Jesus is the witness because he died for us in our place and testifies for us on our behalf. It is written in Hebrews 12:2 that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter, finisher of our faith, because he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And just as in a court of law, Jesus is the faithful witness who testifies on behalf of the Father, likewise the Father testifies on behalf of the Son, John 5, 36-37. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness, but he also prays for his people, interceding for them on their behalf. Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25, and also acts as our defense attorney. It is written in 1 Timothy 2.4-6 that Jesus is the mediator who represents those who have placed their trust in him. He mediates for us much as a defense attorney mediates for his client, telling the judge, Your Honor, as you can clearly see by what is written, my client's debt has been paid in full and he or she is innocent of all charges against him or her. And finally, we see that the one who sent the message is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this does not mean that Jesus, as the Son, was God's first creation. Rather, Colossians 1, 15-17 tells us that by Jesus all things were created through him. In fact, the word firstborn is the English translation of the Greek word prototokos, which references Jesus' preeminence overall and superiority in position. See Exodus 4.22, Deuteronomy 21.16-17. Paul depicts Christ in terms similar to the presentation of the wisdom in Proverbs 8.25-31 in that when everything was established, I was there. In later Jewish wisdom literature, personified divine wisdom is described as the image of God. It would be a grave mistake to think in physical terms here as if Paul were asserting that the Son had a physical origin or was somehow created, which is the classic Arian heresy, rather than existing eternally as the Son with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. What Paul had in mind was the rights and privileges of a firstborn son, especially the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling sovereignty. This is how the expression is used of David in Psalm 89:27. It says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Though the fleshly body of Jesus came into existence when formed within Mary, Jesus as the Son in the Trinity existed eternally before that point in human history. In fact, the Gospel of John, which centers around the identity of Jesus, makes it clear that Jesus is God, and that Jesus existed eternally before the creation of the world. Further, much like the I was there wisdom of Proverbs 8, the Gospel of John makes it clear that Jesus is the great I am. But scripture tells us that the Lord is not merely the beginning, but he is also the end. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Isaiah 46.10. Specifically, the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1, 8 and 17, 21, 6, 22.13. Because Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning with its complement of the end is an expression for God's eternity and completeness. 
Thus, the Lord Christ Jesus is the one who sent a messenger with a message to the entire church of Laodicea. So, what is this message that is so important for this church to know? Well, it's important to note that Jesus sent a message to seven different churches, and this was the last church mentioned. Laodicea was also the only church who did not receive praise, but only rebuke and warning. When the Lord addressed the church of Laodicea through divine revelation to John, he called them lukewarm. Many Christians talk about being lukewarm, and it's often understood to be a bad or negative description, but what exactly does it mean to be lukewarm? Now that word lukewarm is the English translation of the Greek word kleros, meaning tepid. Now, historically and geographically speaking, Laodicea was located between Hierapolis to the north and Colossae to the south. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs and mineral baths, while Colossae seems to have been known for its cold water sources. Laodicea had aqueducts or pipelines that brought in its water. Now, scholars believe that by the time the water arrived to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and unpleasant to drink, making people want to spit it out. Now, if that's the case, then the church would have understood a basic meaning of unpleasantness and dissatisfaction. But as dedicated disciples who are also detectives, let's dig deeper. What made the Laodiceans lukewarm? Jesus began by addressing their deeds. The word deeds is the English translation of the Greek word ergon, meaning acts or deeds. So from the start, we know that the problem was in what they did and or did not do. They said they were rich and wealthy and didn't need anything. They were prideful and relied upon themselves. They were complacent. They rested in a coffin of comfort. If they were a liquid, they would have been room temperature or lukewarm. They merely existed. They were not doing the work of the kingdom because they were not doing the Father's will. However, it is important to note that Jesus called them lukewarm and not stagnant or toxic. This implies a level of hope for redemption and restoration. In response to the Laodiceans' deeds, Jesus said they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. But how could they be poor if they were complacent due to being rich? Well, the simple answer is to say that some people are so poor, all they have is money. Matthew 6, 19-24 tells us that we are not to store up treasure here on earth, but to store up treasure in heaven by living in obedience to God's will, which would include giving. Jesus told his disciples, and us, that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and wealth. It is written in Proverbs 11:4 that riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The simple fact is this, if they weren't in need of anything and relied upon themselves, they weren't living in such a way as to rely upon God for provision and miracles. In essence, they shouldered the entire burden upon themselves and endeavored to rely upon human efforts for results. They left no room for God in their church building where everything was supposed to be about God. Jesus called them blind. Though they were not physically blind, they were spiritually blind because they were not walking by faith, but only by their sight. In stark contrast, Christians are supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. 
To walk by faith, we must place our trust in the Lord even if we don't know the end result and cannot yet see the fullness of the coming glory. Jesus has always had harsh words for those who cling to lead the flock yet neglect to care for the flock, as we see in Zechariah 11:17, Matthew 15:14, and John 9:39-41. And Paul echoed this rebuke in Romans 2, 17-24, and Peter also in 2 Peter 1, 4-11. In essence, being spiritually blind always meant the person was a hypocrite, not living in alignment with God's will as a doer of the word. Luke 6, 46-49, John 13, 17, Romans 2, 13, James 1, 21-27, meaning they did not practice what they preached. Jesus called them naked. This is extremely important because only a few verses earlier in the same chapter, Jesus told the church at Sardis that those who receive salvation are clothed in white. Revelation 3, 1-5. But see also Revelation 4, 4 and Revelation 7, 9 verses 13-17. The Laodiceans were naked because they were not clothed in Christ as we are commanded to be. Galatians 3.27, Ephesians 4.22 and 24, Colossians 3.10. And Revelation 19.8 tells us that the bride of Christ will be clothed, bright and clean. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Biblically speaking, to be naked or uncovered is seen as to reveal one's shame, as we see in Genesis 3, 6-7, Isaiah 24, and Revelation 16, 15. And when Jesus spoke to the church at Sardis, telling them that those who receive salvation are clothed in white, he also told them that they were dead. Whoa! Now that's a harsh message considering Jesus also said the same thing to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27-28. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. To be lukewarm is to be tepid. The insipid are intolerable. Their indecisiveness leads to indigestion. Indifference leads to idleness. Fence-sitting, couch-potato, comfort Christianity receives no praise. Those who sleep in a coffin of comfort might as well be dead. Now, when Jesus called the church of Laodicea lukewarm, he said he was going to vomit them out of his mouth. That is rejection. Jesus was rejecting them. However, in Revelation 3.18, because Jesus is loving, he offers a solution to their potential problem of being rejected. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I shall to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Ironically, the Laodiceans thought that they didn't need anything. However, Jesus informed them that they needed counsel on how to be saved. They were instructed to buy from the Lord after being told they are poor. Well, now, if their money didn't matter and they were actually poor, how could they buy from the Lord what they needed? 
Well, that's the point. They couldn't. Just as we learn from the five foolish virgins of Matthew 25, 1-13, they weren't able to buy the oil they needed either. None of us are capable of buying refined gold from the Lord. However, by God's grace, we can receive the blessing of walking on pure gold in the resurrected life to come, as we see in Revelation 21, 18 and 21. The Laodiceans could purchase these necessities only by the Lord's grace, as the Lord had once invited thirsty spiritual paupers to buy wine and milk without money and without cost, as we see in Isaiah 55, 1-4. As it is written in Song of Solomon 8-7, money can't buy love, thus we cannot buy God's grace. The parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13:44 shows us that it doesn't matter what you possess if you don't possess the treasure of heaven. And that's why the man in that parable sold everything to get it. It is for this reason that Jesus said in Luke 9:25, "For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself?" And in Revelation 3.19, Jesus calls the Laodiceans to repent. We will investigate the depth beyond the surface of this word repent in a later time, but I'll provide a summary for the time being. So the word repent is the English translation of the Greek word metanaeo, which is a compound of the two Greek words meta and nous. Meta means to turn, and nous means mind, intellect, the will, frame of thinking, or the opinion of one's general view of life. Thus, metanaeo means to have a change of mind that leads to a change in action, which ultimately produces a change in direction. True repentance is to stop going in the direction you were once traveling, which was away from God's will, to turn around and go the other way, toward God. Instead of walking farther away from God's will, the repentant person chooses, via free will, to come back into alignment with God's will. In other words, the Laodiceans would be rejected unless they returned to the Lord and started living according to God's word. It is for this reason scripture is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as we see in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. On the day of judgment, there is only acceptance or rejection, approval or disapproval, sheep or goat, wheat or tares, heaven or hell. There is no in-between, nor is there a third category or beyond. Therefore, lukewarm is used to describe those in danger of being rejected. But as it is written, the Lord reproves and disciplines those he loves. Jesus loved them, and that's why he gave them the opportunity to repent. And it is for this reason Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.32, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Therefore, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Matthew 7, 13-14 Jesus is the door. John 10, 7 and 9. In Matthew 7, 21-23, Jesus plainly tells us that those who don't do the Father's will are the ones whom Jesus will tell, I never knew you. And the Father's will is to completely place our trust in the finished work of Christ Jesus while we act in obedience according to our faith. It's a relationship. You're either in a covenant relationship or you're not. There is no in-between. 
A third category or beyond would be adultery. So are you living for the Lord or are you not? Like Shakespeare said, to be or not to be, that is the question. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. It is quite likely the Laodiceans opened the door for Jesus, but they were horrible hosts. It reminds me of Mary and Martha, as we see in Luke 10, 38-42. Both Mary and Martha opened the door to Jesus, but Martha was a horrible hostess and concerned herself with things that did not truly matter, whereas Mary was concerned with every word from the Lord. Inviting Jesus through the door is one thing, but to completely ignore him after inviting him in would be rude. We will dine with him because every word from the Lord is our bread of life. Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4, John 6.35-48-51. And like Mary, Levi also invited Jesus inside and also concerned himself with every word from the Lord, as we see in Mark 2.14-16. And because he did this, he became Matthew, a disciple who now has an entire book in his name within God's word. And that's the way it works. If he is in you, then you are in him. John 17, 21. However, if the Lord does not see himself in you, then he cannot claim to know you. And so we come to the conclusion in Revelation 3:21, where Jesus made a promise to the one who overcomes. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Scholars believe this implies that Christ will delegate some of his ruling authority to his people. Examine Luke 19.17, 1 Corinthians 6.3, 2 Timothy 2.12, or Revelation 24.22.6. But what does it mean to overcome? The word overcomes is the English translation of the Greek word nakao, which refers to being a victor, a champion, or one who possesses some type of superiority, and it can be translated as to conquer, to defeat, to master, to overcome, to overwhelm, to surpass, or to be victorious. This word was often used in Greek literature to portray athletes who had mastered their sport and ultimately reigned supreme as champions in the games. It could also describe a military victory of one foe against the other. Winning the victory in the battle requires the greatest level of commitment and determination. As Paul stated in Ephesians 6, 10-20, we are in spiritual warfare. So how do we ensure that we are victors? Well, it's important to note that the tense of the Greek word translated overcomes speaks of a continuous action. It isn't acceptable to win one single battle but then lose the whole war. We ensure that we will be victors by winning the war. So how do we win the war? 
It is written in 1 John 5, 2-5, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Therefore, we are only victors if we live in faithful obedience to God's word, placing our complete trust in the Lord for the growth of whatever seeds we sow. Success is not determined by results, but by our faithful obedience. The results belong to God alone. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7 And we accomplish this lifelong obedience by enduring until the end. This means that no matter what happens to us, we take seriously the command to love others as we would love ourselves. Matthew 22, 36-40, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, Philippians 2, 3-8. Even if it means giving away everything we have or sacrificing our lives for others. John 15, 13, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Now, Scripture does not tell us whether the Laodiceans heeded the Lord's warning and repented or if they failed to do so. However, from the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1-9, we know how the Lord wanted the Laodiceans to respond. Just like Zacchaeus, the truly repented person would respond by admitting sin and making a declaration to change. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And so in conclusion, just as it says in Ezekiel 18.32, God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Thank you for listening to Picture Scripture by Pointless Thorns Ministries. All Bible study lessons are provided absolutely free of charge to all people who desire to become dedicated disciples of Christ. However, in order to continue long term, we do rely on listener support. If you would like to partner with Pointless Thorns Ministries as a financial backer to ensure we can train up as many disciples as possible, you can give either a one-time or monthly tax-deductible donation by visiting pointlessthorns.wordpress.com or by simply clicking the link provided in our bio or about us section. May God continue to bless you as you continue to bless others.